God, I pray that you would speak your words of truth to us. I thank you for the gift of uh, Scripture, that you have made yourself known. And I thank you that because of this, because of your action on our behalf, we can know you truly. And I pray that that would happen this morning, that you would uh, open our minds and our eyes to the truth that is proclaimed in your word so that we would know you truly, not just our ideas about you, not just our assumptions about what it means to be a Christian, but would we truly know you revealed in your son Jesus that we may have life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, I want to ask you a question, and then I want you to, um, to hold on to the first image that comes to your mind. So here, here's the question. What does a Christian look like? So I know this is a superficial thing, right? But, but think of the first image that comes to mind when, when, someone, when someone says the word Christian, and you, you think super, uh, totally on, on superficial things uh, at the start. So I, I know there's, there's much deeper stuff here, but, but just the, the veneer, what's the superficial uh, picture that you have when you think of Christians? Uh, maybe you think of kind of a, a 1950s uh, church uh, family. This is actually uh, my dad's family. He's the, the little guy who's too young, apparently, to wear pants. Uh, so there he is. Uh, and maybe this is your image of, this is, these are church people. These are Christians, right? They, they uh, dress up on Sunday mornings. They've got suit, tie, dresses, these kind of things. Kind of the quintessential uh, American uh, Sunday morning. Or, or maybe you've kind of updated the dress code, so the first thing you think of is someone in like a, a polo shirt and khakis. And this is a Christian. This is what a Christian uh, looks like. You've upgraded from the 1950s church uniform to the 1990s church uniform. You're really kind of cutting edge. Or, or maybe you're, you're really, really cutting edge, and you think of kind of the Christian hipster with sort of the, the skinny jeans and the big beard and, and like a flannel shirt or something like that. Uh, but what are, obviously all this is superficial, right? But we tend to make assumptions about people based on uh, the superficial stuff. So last fall, my uh, brother-in-law and I were uh, ushers in a family wedding and, and they asked us to wear dark suits and, and white shirts and, and black ties for this. So we, so we did that. Uh, and before the wedding, we had some setup work that we had to do at the reception site. So obviously, we're not wearing our jackets at this point. You want to wear those as little as possible. So we're there, uh, and we set up stuff, and then we go down to the curb uh, where we are going to get picked up uh, and brought to the church for the actual wedding. And I'm sitting there, and, and I look at my brother-in-law, and I look at myself, and I realize, okay, here we are, two young men, dark pants, white shirts, black ties, and he's got a backpack on because he's carrying things around. What do we look like? We look like Mormon witnesses or uh, Mormon missionaries, right? And I'm looking down the street and people are coming. They're like going to the other side of the street and walking over there. They're like avoiding eye contact as they pass by. I'm like, okay. Like we, we make assumptions based on what people look like, right? This is what, this is what we do. But so, so think back about your, your mental image of a Christian. Okay, so this person's in your mind. What are the sins that this person struggles with? Probably pride, right? This is probably a pretty good person, so it's that they probably struggle with pride. Maybe they struggle with self-righteousness, because again, if you're this good, then you tend to kind of puff yourself up a little bit. Maybe, maybe you struggle with not praying enough. Right? Maybe they struggle with, with not reading their Bible often enough. Uh, maybe they're a little bit judgmental, because again, if you're this good and this put together and the people around you, well, they're just a little less so. So you struggle to, about being judgmental and things. But definitely pride. I mean, pride is the one thing that this person probably struggles with, right? That's probably what most Christians, uh, your, your mental image of a, of a Christian really struggles with, right? And, and obviously, with, with any degree of reflection and, and meeting any real-world Christian, we're going to be able to see through those stereotypes, but at the same time, it's easy to have them set in our minds and to, to have them impact what we think about uh, Christians and about the church and Christianity. But, but what are Christians really? 
Who are, are we really? What, what do Christians really look like? What, what do we really struggle with? Uh, we're starting a new series in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, this morning. Uh, and this is a great book because it really gets at what this is about. It shows us who Christians really are. It shows us that Christians struggle with some really big things. And it shows us what being a Christian is really all about. So if you think that Christians are really good people who are really put together, you're going to hear some things about the Christians in this church in Corinth. They're going to shock you. I mean, just to get a flavor of things to come, uh, in chapter 6, uh, Paul gives this long list of vices. And listen to these vices. He says, uh, he's talking about um, sexual immorality, about idolaters, about adulterers, about men who have sex with men, about thieves, about greedy, about drunkards, about slanderers, about swindlers, so all these things. And then he goes on in the next verse to say, and by the way, that's what you were. Such were some of you. And this, these people from all these different backgrounds, those backgrounds are coming out into how they're actually living their Christian life too. So the Christians in this church, one guy is sleeping with his stepmother. Some other men are going to prostitutes and they think this is okay. They're kind of justifying it theologically. Wealthy ones are shunning poor members of the church. They're having arguments about what their worship services should look like. I mean, this is a messy church full of messy people who need to learn what it means to follow Jesus in a very challenging cultural context in the city of Corinth. In other words, 1 Corinthians is a book that has a lot to teach people like you and me. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning is, is just the, the first chapter. And right off the bat, uh, Paul, uh, we need to understand two things about the people that are receiving the letter and then one really big thing that changes everything else. The first thing we have to understand about the recipients of this letter is that something amazing has happened to them. If you haven't already turned to 1 Corinthians 1, uh, do that now. Uh, It's toward the the back, um, probably 10% of your Bible. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Something amazing has happened to these people. Listen to the beginning of this book. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very standard uh, Christian letter opening. The kind of, it's following the conventions of the day. You list who's the writer of the letter, who are the recipients, and then a brief word of greetings. And, and Paul is uh, following that same thing here. So first he identifies himself. This is from Paul, and he identifies himself as an apostle called by Jesus Christ. So an apostle is one who is sent, and in Paul's case, he is sent to go and to plant churches and to strengthen churches. Or in the terms of our mission statement, he's there to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus. This is what he's about. He's an apostle, and so he's trying to strengthen this church in Corinth. That's why he's writing in the first place. So it's from Paul, it's to the church in Corinth, this city with a rich history in the Greco-Roman world. And even as he's identifying who he's sending it to, this church of God in Corinth, he's already hinting at this great thing that has happened to them. So he says that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified is about being made holy. And not only are they being made holy in Christ, they're called to be his holy people. Uh, Being uh, called to be his holy people. In other words, this is a a big calling here. Holiness is about uh, being sacred, being set apart. It's about uh, righteousness and moral perfection. So these are big things that are going on here. And and these uh, Corinthians, this church in Corinth, is not alone. They're united to all of those everywhere who call on the name of Jesus. So this is all really big stuff. 
It's easy for us to pass by, but this is really big stuff. Paul's going to expand on that then and then uh, talk about the, the way he thanks God for what he's seeing going on in this church. Look at the next verses here. Verse 4. He says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the really amazing thing that has happened to these Christians in Corinth is that God has given them grace. This is a huge thing. God has given them grace. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, or if you don't understand what that means, you could be totally underwhelmed by that statement, right? Okay, great. God has given them grace. I heard this a million times. God gives grace. God gives grace. Or, or I don't even know what that means, so why would I get excited about that? But, but really, this is a huge statement that makes all the difference in the world. God has given them grace. That means that God has shown them uh, favor, kindness that they don't deserve. They're not being treated as they deserve. They're being treated much better than they deserve. The, the reality that the Bible tells us is that what all of us deserve is to spend eternity in hell. We, we deserve to be punished because we have set ourselves up as enemies of God. We have rejected of him. We have rebelled against him. We are essentially shaking our fist at him. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins. We are slaves to sin, and we can't get out of it. There's, there's nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves. That's the position that every single one of us is born into. If God treated us as we deserved, we would only be punished. But God gives us grace. The, the whole reason that he sends Jesus is to rescue his people. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, is that rather than just condemning us and punishing us, God sent his son to rescue us. So we were dead in sins. He has made us alive in Christ. We are guilty before his throne, but he has forgiven us by the cross of Jesus Christ. These are huge statements. God has given grace to the church in Corinth. And look at what that, has, what that means for them. They are rich in every way, verse 5. They are rich in the words that they say. They're, they're rich in their understanding and in, the, in their knowledge. Uh, the message about Jesus that Paul and others have proclaimed to them, this, this good news of Jesus, is confirmed. It's been effective among them. It's made a difference there. And because of that, they don't lack anything that is of true value. They have every gift that's needed. And when Christ returns, they're going to be declared blameless. I mean, think about that people who are guilty, people who are imperfect people, being declared blameless in Christ and will therefore be welcomed into the kingdom of God where God is on his throne and acknowledged and it's a place of perfect peace and perfect righteousness where we get to live with God forever. And this is really good news. God has done something great for them. He has given them his grace. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the same is true of you. God sent Jesus to rescue you. And if you put your trust in him, it doesn't matter that who you are, what your background is, what you've done, you are now a child of God. You're looking forward to the day when Christ will return to uh, set all things right. And it doesn't matter what, how you look. It, it doesn't matter how you dress. It doesn't matter if you don't fit any of the Christian stereotypes that you or anyone else has kind of manufactured. You are a child of God if you have put your trust in him. This is for everyone. So there's good news in Corinth, is that God has given them his grace. But that doesn't mean that everything is good. We see that something amazing has happened to them, but now we see that something terrible is happening to these people. Look at the next verses, verses 10 through 12. 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. The terrible thing that's happening in the church in Corinth is that God's people are fighting with one another. This is a terrible thing. Now again, you might be underwhelmed by that statement. We're used to Christians fighting with one another. My parents, when they were first married, belonged to a church that was part of a denomination whose initials were IFCA, and they used to joke that it stood for, I fight Christians anywhere. Right? I mean, because we're used to this. This is, this is a normal part of the American church uh, landscape. We've gotten used to, being, uh, to Christians being divided about things and arguing about all sorts of things. But, but if we understand what the church is really all about, this should break our hearts. This is a terrible thing. I mean, Paul has said that this is to the church of God, all those everywhere who call in the name of Jesus. So Christians have one fundamental thing in common. We call Christ Lord. We call him king. That's a really big deal. And that one truth should undermine all of the divisions. So Paul is making his strong appeal on the basis of this. He's appealing to them in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's the king, and so we have to be united. Stop the division. Stop the quarreling. Be at peace with one another. Agree with one another. Say the same thing. Be perfectly united in mind and in thought. And if these people are somehow hanging on to these uh, human divisions, different groups are claiming allegiance to different leaders. So one group is like, yeah, we're Paul's people. Another group is we're Apollos' people. And another one's saying we're, we're Peter's people. Cephas means Peter. And others are probably really self-righteous and that, yeah, well, we're Jesus' people. We're Christ's people. We belong to him. But Paul's saying, listen, you're missing the whole point here. You're making these little divisions about, about human leaders and stuff like that. But the only thing that really matters is Jesus. You're hanging on to stuff that's it's so insignificant. You're getting caught up in the insignificant stuff. It's like uh, the Jerry Seinfeld uh, bit about uh, sports fans really cheering for laundry more than anything else. You've got a player on your team, and he's doing great things, and you're cheering him on. You're awesome. You're awesome. Yay, we love this guy. And then he gets traded to another team, and he comes back to your stadium, and he's wearing a different colored shirt. And you're saying, that guy's terrible. I hate that guy. He's saying, listen, you're essentially rooting for laundry. You're saying wrong shirt. You're wearing the wrong shirt. You're terrible. We get caught up in this stuff that's so insignificant. Paul's saying, listen, it doesn't make any sense in the church. Listen to what he says. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Listen, human leaders are, are nothing. They're just instruments used by God. The one thing is Jesus. This whole thing is about Jesus, and he's not divided. None of these leaders died for you. You weren't baptized into their name. You're baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. He is the central thing now. Why would anyone want to claim the name of Paul? Paul is nothing. He didn't do anything for you. All he's doing is being an instrument used by God to proclaim the gospel. It's all about Jesus. 
as they hang on to these different leaders, they're missing the whole point that this is the one thing. Everyone, everywhere who calls on the name of Jesus has been part of a new family now, and that family shouldn't be divided. They shouldn't be quarreling and divisions and all this stuff. They're united around the one thing. So something amazing has happened to them. Something terrible is happening to them. And now we have to come to the one big thing that changes everything else. Verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We divide uh, humanity into all sorts of different categories, right? We say men and women, black, white, Latino, uh, Democrats, Republicans, all sorts of different things are, are, are divisions that we make up, uh, that we divide humanity into. But, but this first verse here, verse 18, says there's really only two divisions that matter, and it's all of in, in how they respond to the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's those who are perishing, and it's those who are being saved. Those are really the only categories of human division that are ultimate, It's how you respond to the cross. Those who are perishing look at the cross of Jesus Christ and and think that it's it's total foolishness. So for those who are looking for power, like the Jews in Jesus' day, always asking him to do some kind of miraculous, powerful sign, and asking the same thing in Paul's day, those who are looking for power look at the cross and they see only weakness. I mean, how could God's saving king, who's supposed to be this powerful one who's going to come and kick out the Romans and bring Jewish autonomy, how can God's Messiah, the saving king, be crucified? I mean, he looks like a total failure. All they see is weakness here. There's no power here. And so Jesus is for them a scandal. He's a stumbling block. They can't get over the cross because it doesn't fit in with any of their categories of what power looks like. Or for those who are looking for wisdom, like the Greeks in uh, Corinth who made up all these systems of thought that are still studied in universities today. They're looking for wisdom. They look at the cross and say, that's not wisdom at all. There's no wisdom here. That's total foolishness. I mean, what kind of a story is it that, that God would, would send his own son to walk around on the earth and to, to suffer and to die? All this stuff about the cross, it, it just doesn't make any sense from their point of view. It doesn't sound at all like wisdom. And so for the Greeks who are looking for wisdom, they too reject Jesus because because the cross doesn't fit within their categories of thought. This doesn't look like wisdom from their perspective. And so those who are looking for power and those who are looking for wisdom reject the cross of Jesus Christ. That puts them in the category of those who are perishing. But not everyone looks at the cross and rejects it. There's another group of people now, those who see the power of the cross. They see there is wisdom in the cross. They are those who are being saved. They see that the cross, God has called them, and therefore they're able to see this is truly the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
Now, it's very important to see this is because of God's action. It would be easy for those of us who do believe that the cross of Jesus Christ is the power and wisdom of God to suddenly think that, oh, it's because we're really smart that we've figured out that the cross really is true wisdom and true power. But that's not what's going on here at all. God has opened our eyes so that we could see it. We're just as blind and ignorant as anyone else. We're not more clever or smarter or anything. God has just shown us something. He has opened our eyes so that we're able to see the true wisdom and the true power that is here in the cross. See, what we're seeing here is that the cross is revolutionary. It's revolutionary. It's, it's revolutionary in, in two senses. In one sense, it's, it's revolutionary because it, it turns upside down everything we think we know about power and about wisdom. It turns everything upside down turns it on its head. See, we have to remember what the cross really is. We're used to seeing the cross on, uh, you know, gold necklaces. We're used to seeing it on tattoos. We're used to seeing it uh, in, in church buildings. We've got one at the front of our sanctuary. We're used to seeing crosses around. And we have to remember that the cross was this brutal uh, instrument of execution. It would have been inconceivably uh, morbid for uh, crosses to be used as uh, ornamentation in Paul's day. I mean, think about it. What, what if someone was going around wearing a noose around their neck as a decorative object? Wouldn't you think there was something wrong with that picture? Wouldn't it seem really morbid to you? Or, or what if someone had a, a French guillotine in, in a little miniature version uh, in gold on a gold chain around their neck and they were walking around kind of uh, like that? You'd think there's something wrong here. This is just kind of weird. It's gross. Or you think about, like, what would you think of a community group that would make a sign out by the highway and put a big picture of an electric chair on the sign by the highway? And this is really morbid. That's what the cross is. The cross is a sign of disgrace. It's an instrument of execution used in the Roman world, one of the most brutal forms ever invented. You look at this, and people in Paul's day look at this and say, there's no power there. There's no wisdom there. It's only a sign of death, and disgrace, and shame. It's a sign of, of a failure, someone who has re- rejected, been rejected totally. And yet God has revolutionized the meaning of that instrument of execution. It has become the symbol of God's great salvation. That's revolutionary. It turns upside down everything we think we know about wisdom and power. The cross is revolutionary on another level, too. It turns upside down the lives of those who are being saved. Look at the next verses. Verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love this because it reminds us that this is not us. This is not our power. This is not because we are such good moral people or because we are so intelligent or so smart. It's because God has chosen people who had nothing and he has given them everything. This has made all the difference in the world. It means that we don't have to be the, the kind of a big influencers in town. We don't have to be the smartest or the best looking or the wealthiest or the best at anything. We're just normal people. We can be the, the least significant people in the world 
But if God has chosen us, it turns our world upside down. He takes nobodies and gives them everything. And of course, it's not for us. It's not for our own renown. It's solely for the glory of God. And that's what this is all about. The only boast that anyone can ever have is in God himself. This is always gift. That's, so, that's what's so revolutionary about the message of Jesus, this crucified king. Jesus has become for us wisdom, righteousness, holiness, redemption. I mean, think about that. None of that comes from us. I mean, who among us would say that, that we are inherently wise? Oh, no, of course not. We don't have this inherent wisdom to ourselves. We are inherently foolish people who believe all sorts of lies and are easily deceived. But Jesus has become wisdom for us. God has opened our eyes to see that he is true wisdom. I mean, who among us would claim to be inherently righteous or holy? No, we are inherently sinful people, worse than we would ever dare tell another person. But Jesus has become for us righteousness, holiness. He is our righteousness and holiness. He lived the perfect life that we never could have, and he has given that to us as a gift, clothed us, covered us with his own righteousness and holiness. He has made us holy. And who among us could redeem ourselves? Redemption is about being set free from from bondage, from slavery. All of us were stuck, right? We had no chance of escaping in our own power. But God sent Jesus to redeem us, and now he has become our redemption. He has set us free. All of this is totally gift. Everything we have that is meaningful and good and true and wise and powerful is a direct gift given to us from God. It's all about his grace. And that's why the fighting that is going on in Corinth is so troubling. See, status is a really important thing in a city like Corinth. They really wanted to to cling on to people who had status, and that's why they're probably taking names of leaders, because they thought somehow they could get sort of uh, status by being close to someone else who was powerful or well-known or had renown. And it looks like this city, uh, this church in the city that, that values status is taking its cues from the culture around them rather than taking its cues from the gospel. They want wisdom and power and status just like the city of Corinth wants wisdom and power and status. But they need to recognize that, that the cross undermines all of that. It revolutionizes the whole thing. If they're still hanging on to these factions and splitting apart and quarreling and being obsessed with particular leaders, they're missing the point. Why would anyone fly the banner of Paul? It doesn't make any sense. Fly the banner of Christ. And this isn't just for Corinthians in the first, second century. This demands that we took a hard look at what the foundation of our thinking about the church is too. See, there are lots of things that unite and divide people in the culture around us. There there are uh, very uh, insignificant things. I mean, some people unite around something like watching the same TV show. Oh, you watched that too? Great. We have something to talk about. We can kind of talk about our favorite episodes and quote our favorite lines to each other. They unite around something so insignificant. And we divide over really insignificant things too. We think, oh, well, you drive that kind of a car. I drive this kind of a car. We're going to divide because we have different brand loyalties when it comes to automobiles. What an absurd thing. We unite and divide around the most insignificant things. And this can creep into the church as well. Some churches, when it comes right down to it, they're really united by something like dress code. Like, oh, well, we wear suits and ties at our church. Or on the other side, well, we only wear jeans at our church. Think about how insignificant it is. Dress code can unite and divide people. 
Or musical style, can you unite or divide people? Well, we only sing hymns at our church, or well, we only sing uh, contemporary music at our church, or we only sing country uh, Christian music at, at our church. This can unite or it can divide. And it's such an insignificant thing. People can cling on to a particular location. They can cling on to a, a personality or a pastor. They can cling on to a particular demographic or whatever. But all of that stuff is, is, is nothing. It's so insignificant. Christ crucified is the one big thing that changes everything else. The cross is revolutionary. It is the only thing worth uniting around. Let me repeat that. The cross is the only thing worth uniting around. Now, I don't know why you're here this morning. I don't know the things that that we do that make you want to come back to our church. I don't know the things that we do that make you want to leave our church and never look back. But I do know this. The only thing worth really truly uniting about is the cross of Jesus Christ. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is meaningless and insignificant compared to the one big thing. The cross of Jesus Christ is the one thing that unites Christians from any different background. This is the only thing that can truly hold the unity of a church beyond any of the externals. Jesus has called us together, and Jesus must be the one who unites us. And if you think that doesn't matter, listen to what Jesus prays in John chapter 17. He's praying for his immediate followers, the group of 12 that have been with him, and then he's also praying for us. Listen to how he prays to God for, that, for us. John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, speaking of his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's all Christians today. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. This is what is at stake here. If we live in unity as a group of believers, if if we really unite around the cross, not anything else but the cross of Jesus Christ, it testifies to the truth of the message of Jesus. There is so much at stake here. There is a community around us that unites and divides over all sorts of different things. We as Christians have the opportunity to testify to something bigger than any human division. The cross is where people from all different backgrounds come together. Young, old, men, women, children, black, white, Latino. It doesn't matter what category you are in socioeconomically or any other human division. The cross brings people from every single different part of, of, diverse, uh, of the diversity of humanity into one, the name of Jesus Christ. The way we live together shows the truth of that message. It shows that this really is the most important thing. There is so much at stake here. You and I must want above everything else for the name of Jesus to be made larger and larger, for more and more people to come to find life in him. That means we check our preferences at the door, we check our egos at the door, and we'd be all in for the mission that Jesus has given us. This is all about us wanting to give glory to God. It's all about the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Nothing less and nothing more. That's what this is all about. And God is glorified in us and through us as a church as we proclaim the good news of Jesus for everyone else to hear. That is what we're about. And that's what we must always be about. I've said this in the past. I'm going to keep saying it. God has put people in your life 
that he has positioned you to proclaim the good news of Jesus to. You are better positioned than I am to reach a lot of people, the people that you already have natural relationships with, natural friendships. If God has not laid on your heart someone who needs Jesus, ask that he do it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he has equipped you and positioned you to tell people about him. So pray that God would put someone on your heart who needs Jesus. And then keep praying for him. Once he answers that prayer and he puts someone on your heart who needs Jesus, keep praying for that person. When we are rooted in the cross, when we are together in that same mindset, focused on on this mission of having God be glorified in everything that we do, all the other stuff fades away, and we're able to focus together on this truth. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, know that this is our heart for you. Jesus has made all the difference in the world for us. He has turned our lives totally upside down, and it is the best thing that has ever happened to us. And we want this for you too, not for our now, not for any points or anything like that, but, but solely because it is the greatest thing that has ever happened to us, and we believe it is the one thing above everything else that will make the, the biggest difference in your life. It will revolutionize your life, and you'll never look back. This is what we want for you. As we move toward the close of the service, we'll be taking what's called uh, the Lord's Supper or communion. And this is a chance for us to, again, proclaim the death of Jesus until he returns. That's what this is about. Uh, Paul says later in in this very book that we're looking at, 1 Corinthians, that, that that's what happens. We proclaim that Christ died. We proclaim this revolutionary act of the cross of Jesus Christ, God's power, God's wisdom, turning us upside down, changing the world. And we get to experience that in a way that we can touch and we can taste and we can see. And the other part of it is that it does bind us together. It testifies to the unity around the cross. It reminds us that this is the central thing. This is what binds us together now and always. As we prepare for the table, please join me in prayer. God, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you that you have taken weak, foolish, undeserving people. And you have redeemed us. You have given us life. You have given us hope. You have given us peace. I pray that you would use these elements, the the bread and the cup, to again remind us of the truth of the gospel, that you sent your son to die for us. He died in our place so that we can have life. Use these normal elements, normal bread, normal juice to speak again of this incredible, amazing truth that you have given us your grace. I pray that you would unify us as a church around the cross of Jesus Christ. When we're tempted to quarrel with one another, when we're tempted to get in arguments and to fight over peripheral things, bring us back to the one thing that we share in common. Jesus Christ, crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.